Okay, can you say something? Hello. Yeah, I think I'm still hearing you from, say, talk again. Hello, hello. Yeah. Can you talk? Mine, I had no. to turn my volume up. Awesome. Okay. What I want to do is start out by playing you what I hope is going to be the beginning of the Hope More episode <laughs> and listen to it together and then talk to you about it. Okay. So I'm thinking of starting here. I've been trying to think about what I like about sex. I think it has to do with not thinking and being in my body. Mm -hmm. um, that is not always my experience actually having sex. Mm -hmm. It was my experience meditating. It hadn't really been before the silent retreat, but I, I would sit there and I would be like, God damn it, my hip hurts. My back hurts. It's, it's bench so hard. I was sitting on this wooden bench. And, and then after like a few days, I was like, this pain is super helpful because it takes me right back. If I just acknowledge this pain, I'm right back in the present. Okay, great. So I'm so enlightened. Fantastic. And then I had these several realizations. One was... I've had teenagers, because of the span of my kids' age, for uh, like 13 years or at least 10. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, you know what? If the, if the practice mm -hmm. is to be in the moment, yeah. okay. to be in the present, mm -hmm. for me, having teenagers is all about the past and the future. Mm -hmm. Did I do enough a good enough job. Yes, I did. No, I didn't. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen to them? Yeah. Is it enough? Is it enough? It's not about the present. You know, whereas when they were babies, it was really hard, but mm. they were in the present. Yeah. Yeah. And I had moments where they would bring me into the present. I, like it was, it was like a Buddhist practice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I had this, I, I'm sitting there in Horizon Stanzas and I'm like, I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> like even in the next gesture. Hmm. And I was like, okay, this is the experience that I'm looking for in sex. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're a real convert to dance. I really am. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's all dance though, because it, yeah. it's not. It's you probably wouldn't have that experience watching the Nutcracker. H hell no. <laughs> I don't know. I just, there was something that I got about the body mm -hmm. and about time. And, and yet here I am like saying to you, like, how are you even surviving <laughs> the fact that the dance is over? <laughs> Where's the video? Where's mm -hmm. the full movie? I, I want everyone to see this dance, but like, you can't, you have to be there. You do. That's what's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, video of dance is uh, a poor a poor simulacrum. But that's fucking unbelievable. 
And that's just par for the course. Yeah, see, you 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 have somehow come to terms with this, this part of it. I have not. Okay. I'm I find this to be I mean, I think like my dream whenever I make a piece that I feel good about is I want to perform it as much as possible. So then, you know, I'll try to get gigs and hustle and whatever transpires is is fabulous. Yeah, but you you even said, like, it, there were three performances only, which to me is breaking my heart. <laughs> you know, it's such a weird thing, because here, here we are talking, and I, I want everyone listening to go see what I saw. Mm-hmm. That's not possible. Well, sure it is. They could invite us to perform. Right. If you're listening to this, invite us to perform. Yes. And, it, and, and, and see whatever you do next, whatever. You do next. Thank you. See it and be there and do that. Thanks. And I and I think that this is also a particularly poignant moment in time because of the pandemic. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that, you know, for me, I, I actually really liked teaching online. Mm. And there are ways in which you can teach poetry, the writing of poetry better remotely than you can in the classroom Hmm. this classroom is really has a lot of problems sure um and um and things opened up for me to reach people and bring people together Hmm. and have it feel less transactional and have it and distribute power much much differently Hmm. but um and I you know in the back of my mind I was like oh my god you know my cousin is a violinist and her husband is a violinist and they've lost 95% of their income. And, you know, this is very bad. And, you know, performance, what happened to performance? But I don't think I felt it. Like there is something that I think human beings only get in live performance. Oh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And that was for everyone in the performing arts. I mean, the pandemic was just devastating. And I think everyone is still reckoning with the impact and reorganizing. And there's been just seismic shifts in the field, people moving, people leaving organizations, dancers in their prime, having lost three years, which is a lifetime for a dancer. I mean, so many, so many really profound impacts. And also the public not kind of falling out of the the habit yep. of going to the theater. This like primal public ritual yep. of sharing space and sharing catharsis and sharing experience. I mean, it's it's essential. It is essential. Yeah. So So I'm just sort of like having this huge epiphany that it's essential you you've been thinking about this for a long time can you put into words better than i can uh, like other than me saying like it's better than sex <laughs> totally totally fucking is <laughs> but why why is it essential for, like because a lot of people are like i'm so glad i don't have to go to the office uh-huh i don't know i feel like when you go to see a live show as opposed to watching Netflix or even going to a movie theater, the stakes are much higher. You're seeing action play out in real time and in an embodied three-dimensional way. 
yeah, I mean, I think with both theater and dance, there's something about it being live and, mm -hmm. and playing out in real time. And it has the power to reach, reach us in a way that other, other arts don't have the same impact. You know, when you look at a painting that can also reach you, but it's, it's, it's just a different language. Mm -hmm. I don't think the language arts can do what dance can do and what theater can do. I mean, vice versa, you know, we talk endlessly like what is a poem does it have to have line breaks uh, who mm, cares mm. you know I like and I'm always saying like I don't really believe in genre in the past I've been like well I think I'm a poet and not another kind of writer because I I'm always predominantly obsessed by form mm -hmm. and this is why I'm doing this podcast and this is why I'm so interested in sound work and you know and conversation as opposed to interview I think that it is exactly what you said. The, qu the quality for me that makes something a poem versus a story or an essay, all of which I love, but what makes it a poem is that it is reaching for this feeling of live, of being live, of being performed, of being of 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 I don't know if it's because it's spoken in the brain I don't know if it's because of this very thing that some people find alienating which is like but just tell the story just tell the story when poems don't tell the story when they hold back when they when they're doing something else when they're when they're dipping into language in a different way I think it's because of this moment when they are they become embodied and and then they shift back into like just what they have to be which is language with all its history and all its context and all of its meaning making it's funny because I I do think about choreography as being analogous to poetry, even though it is its own kind of unique thinking, um, because it is for me about close readings, mm -hmm. close readings of the body and, and deconstruction, breaking things down into what's elemental, finding surprising combinations, um, you know, what happens when you mix A and B, you know, I feel like there's a lot of formal or craft um, analogies in the making that I associate with with poetry. Something about a, a very granular attention to material, mm -hmm. which is how I like to make dance. Obviously, too late for me to become either a dancer or a choreographer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even the point. Yeah. But that's the, the work that I want to make is work that feels in the making and in the and the and the receiving like what I saw. Mm. I mean, I have moments where I read someone else's poems and I'm just like blown away and I'm just like, oh, my God, this changes everything. Mm. But 
something about it being completely in another language mm -hmm. um, and like outside of language itself for mm -hmm. me, I think is, I don't know, maybe it's sort of like why I had to sit still in a room with 80 people for seven days and be quiet. Well, that's something great. happened. Well, we should keep talking. Whether I'm going to have the guts to like have this be the very beginning of the episode with the conversation we're having right this minute be the intro, I don't really know. What I do know is that I wanted to make a podcast about a dance inspired by a poem and it was sort of impossible. I, I, I keep bringing up sex in the conversation. <laughs> and I think part of that was because it was on my mind and because it was the most accurate way for me to describe the feeling of seeing this dance, but also because when Hope walked into my hotel room for our first conversation, I had never met her on, uh, in, in person, I had this feeling that just totally totally shocked me. And, and when I get really nervous, I, I talk too much. Some people get really quiet. I talk too much. So let's start <laughs> by saying who you are. Sure. And, and, and then we can talk about why I'm hoping that our conversation about the audio will end up being helpful to create an accessible listening experience for people who have not read Descent of Alette, who have not seen Horizon Stanzas by Hope Moore, because this conversation is incredibly important to me and I think informs the commonplace conversations that are to follow. So I'm mm. becoming more and more interested in performance, but I don't yet know how to talk about performance, especially on a podcast. So who are you? <laughs> well... My name is Elisa Harrod, and I'm a writer. I live in Austin, Texas, where I've been for a long time. And I am also a devoted and longtime Commonplace fan. <laughs> Do you want to say the name of your book and what kind of writer you are? And Sure. A while ago now, I, I wrote a memoir called coming to my senses. That's about what happened to me after I stopped being an academic and before I really became a professional writer, um, which was that I became obsessed with scent and perfume and the communities that create it and collect it. And it's also a book about the importance of femininity and beauty and pleasure. And it takes place in the long ago land of 2008, <laughs> <laughs> which no longer right. exists in so many ways. It's a very comforting book. I recommend it. So now the listener can understand why it makes so much sense for me to ask someone who has written about um, scent to help me talk about dance. 
Well, I I have to say I did not find that audio particularly inaccessible. And it what it really made me think of was um, this. Welcome to the trippy simulacrum of me, your host, Rachel Zucker, talking over Zoom to writer, commonplace listener, commonplace school student, my virtual, actual, virtual friend, Elisa Harrod. You're listening to Elisa and I listen to and talk about two conversations I recorded with choreographer and author Hope Moore. I recorded one of these conversations with Hope on April 20th, 2023 in San Francisco, just a few hours after getting off a plane from New York. Two days later, I entered a seven-day silent retreat at Spirit Rock. On April 29th, my friend Michelle picked me up from Spirit Rock, and that night, Michelle, poet D.A. Powell, and I saw Hope Moore's dance, Horizon Stanzas, at the Joe Good Annex in San Francisco. The next morning, I flew back to New York City. A few days later, I recorded a second conversation with Hope Moore, who happened to be in New York. This time, we recorded at my home in Washington Heights. Hope Moore is an artist and advocate. As a dancer, Moore trained at San Francisco Ballet School and on scholarship at the Merce Cunningham and Trisha Brown Studios in New York City. She performed in the companies of dance pioneers Lucinda Childs and Trisha Brown. While dancing in New York, Moore also freelanced with Liz Goering, Douglas Dunn, Trajel Harrell, and Pat Catterson. In 2007, she founded Hope More Dance. In 2010, she founded Hope More Dance's presenting program, The Bridge Project. In 2020, she co-stewarded the organization's transition to a model of distributed leadership. In 2022, the organization changed its name to Bridge Live Arts and its mission to creating and supporting equity-driven live art that centers artists as agents of change. In 2023, Hope transitioned out of co-directorship and into affiliated artist status with Bridge Live Arts. She now works as an independent artist fiscally sponsored by Fractured Atlas. Hope Moore teaches contemporary dance technique, creative movement, movement for actors, and cross-disciplinary practice that puts dance in dialogue with visual art. As an advocate, Moore is a licensed California attorney and a fellow with the Sustainable Economies Law Center. She is a solo law practice specializing in supporting artists, activists, and mission-driven organizations. Read more about her lawyering work at movementlaw.net. In this episode, you will hear Hope Moore and me, and Alyssa Harrod and me, talk about Hope Moore's dance, Horizon Stanzas, which was inspired by Alice Notley's book-length epic poem, Descent of Alette. If you'd like to know more about the connection between Notley's Descent of Alette and the book Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, translated and retold by my mother, Diane Wokstein, and Samuel Noah Kramer, I invite you to listen to Commonplace Episode 26 with Alice Notley and to read my memoir, Mothers, published in 2014. I have complicated feelings about Inanna, Descent of Alette, and about performance. 
I talk about performance and performativity in many commonplace episodes, especially in episode 99 with Douglas Kearney. In the next few months, Commonplace has several new performance-related episodes planned, including a reading in Bryant Park and a reading and conversation with Fred Moten and Ronaldo Wilson. We've also got upcoming episodes with Moheb Solomon, Sharif Shanahan and Safia and Hello, Laurel Snyder, three more Poetics of Wrongness-related episodes, and so many other amazing things that I can't wait to share with you. After over a hundred episodes, I feel like Commonplace is both hitting its stride and taking more and greater risks. This also means more labor-intensive producing, editing, and brainstorming for me. As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no corporate funding, and no institutional support. So if you're not already a patron and have the means to be one, please sign up. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of Shifting Cultural Power, Case Studies and Questions in Performance by Hope Moore, courtesy of University of Akron Press, or Coming to My Senses, a story of perfume, pleasure, and an unlikely bride by Alyssa Harrod, courtesy of Penguin. To become a Commonplace patron, please go to patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or to our website, commonpodcast.com. On our website, you can also sign up for our per-episode newsletter and register for my new year-long class, Reading with Rachel. For this episode, Commonplace's charitable partner will donate money to Maui Strong, chosen by Hope Moore, and to Buckle Bunnies, chosen by Alyssa Harrod. Maui Strong is an organization committed to providing a rapid financial response and recovery for the devastating wildfires on Maui. Buckle Bunnies was founded in 2020 by a small group of young, passionate Texans whose commitment to reproductive justice led them to dream of a world that provides compassionate care to communities as they work toward collective liberation. Please donate to these important organizations and to Commonplace if you are able. And now let's go back to Elisa, who is talking to me about Hope, talking to me about Alice Notley's Descent of Alette and performance and the body and community and feminism and care and life transitions and art making and life making. I did not find that audio particularly inaccessible. What it really made me think of was this collective I was part of for a while called the Austin Project, which is a is a collective run by the poet and playwright Sharon Bridgeforth and her wife Omioson Olomo, whose academic name I think is still Dr. Joni Jones. And Omi's work is all dance-based. It's all in the body. And Sharon's um, work is both embodied and in language. And most of the work that we did in that collective, it was sort of it sort of ran like a church. So we met for four hours every Sunday for I think 15 weeks. And Omi would lead us through a series of exercises 
that were mostly based in the body. And some of us were writing and then there was a performance at the end. I just remember, I was remembering this moment I had while I was listening to the audio, watching my friend who, whose name is now Jack. I remember everybody doing a lot of spoken word pieces and then Jack got up and just made a single gesture with their hand. And somehow that was bigger and more moving and more narrative than all the pages I had been trying to produce. And it just, it really, I, I remember having what sounds like a similar revelation to the one that you were having, which is this, the incredible presence and vulnerability and richness of the human body in front of another human body and how, you know, how much that can do in, in a way that, um, yeah, as a writer who tries to make that kind of communication happen, often from a solitary place, hoping but not knowing whether or not it will ever land, and often you're not there when it does land. That's a, it's a, it can be, you feel a lot of envy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, you totally get it. I am also not surprised that you get it. So just to say like a few other reasons that I really wanted to talk to you about this, I feel like the audio that I collected with Hope does not do her as an artist, as a choreographer, as a, as a human being, uh, justice. And it doesn't really do the dance justice. Um, and it doesn't do Alice Notley and Descent of Alette justice. And so I was feeling like such a mm -hmm. failure. And so I thought, okay, I need to ask for help. Who am I gonna ask for help? And thought of you. In addition to, thank you so much, being a longtime Commonplace fan, you were in, my Poetics of Wrongness class that I uh, gave online, uh, which is sort of like the first class of the Commonplace School, which is having a very soft, soft opening, um, <laughs> soft and slow. And then after the Poetics of Wrongness class, five of us decided to have a no feedback writing group, which is not really no feedback, but we won't go into that right now. So we meet once a week, the five of us to read new work to each other. Also, we're, at, we're in the final week of this 13 week artist's way cycle. So we've really spent a lot of time in those settings together. Meanwhile, in addition to all of this, you have been reading Alice Notley's Descent of Alette, which is the text that inspired Horizon Stanzas by Hope Moore, with a group of people over the course of many weeks. And then in the past few weeks, you had a marathon reading of Descent of Alette over t the course of two sessions where, where people just, you know, read it. I'd like to play you one other part of the audio with Hope where she, I ask her what her history is 
with Descent of Arlette, like how she came to read it and make a dance about it. What I don't want to play you is the part of the audio where I tell her about my <laughs> history with Descent of Arlette, because I'm so sick of hearing myself talk about it. Okay. <laughs> so this is from the beginning. This is from our first conversation. And... Let's see, how I came to start making this dance was that I was in the middle of navigating several major life transitions. The end of a 25-year marriage, uh, leaving an organization that I founded 15 mm -hmm. years ago. So a lot of endings, mm -hmm. uh, personally and professionally. And with those, a lot of reckoning with uh, trying to reimagine my life. Um, reckoning with uh, what it means to start over, um, reckoning with my own limitations, mm -hmm. all of those kinds of big questions that one holds on a threshold. And so I really wanted to make a dance uh, exploring those questions. And I had read Notley's Descent of Alette during the early days of lockdown, mm -hmm. so fairly recently. And it was just, you know, transporting and moving and so compelling to me. And it seemed like such a good fit. I do really love putting dance in conversation with language. And so it seemed like a really fitting anchor for this particular project because, as you know, it, it's about um, reckoning with old narratives, moving from darkness to light, trying to reclaim voice and all of those themes really resonated with what I've been dealing with personally. And it also seemed to dovetail with uh, bigger questions in the field about decolonizing the body, about trying to reimagine hierarchical power structures. And then also I was just really intrigued with what I think is part of her desire in writing the poem, which is to reclaim a form that's historically been dominated by men. And I've always been really interested as a feminist in how we as female identified humans move into power when we've been socialized not to. So those are all the knots that I'm interested in untangling. And that's why I decided to work with the poem. Okay, so you so you read the book and it spoke to you on all these levels. And then what? At what point in the reading did you think, oh, this isn't just a book that I want to enjoy and 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 be moved and changed by, but I want to make something. Well, when I first read it, I wasn't thinking of it uh, in terms of a performance project at all. Mm -hmm. um, I, I went back to it as I was thinking about this project. I just remembered it as, as a text. So yeah, it wasn't in the reading that I imagined it being staged, but I do really like working with texts that weren't written with the intention of being staged necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, I find it to be a really exciting project. So then when I started diving into the book initially, uh, I imagined a performance that was very text heavy. Hmm. 
and uh, I imagined, you know, making movement for the owl and making movement for Alette and making movement for the tyrant and then pairing those movement sequences with voiceovers. But it, in the creative process, it just became too matchy-matchy. I think my aesthetic tends more towards abstraction. And people who came in to see the work in progress were like, there's too much text, there's too much text. Even people who are, you know, self-proclaimed Notley fans. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like whenever you're pairing movement with text, they work on very different parts of the brain. And absorbing dance is a very different kind of headspace than absorbing language. And oftentimes the two might cancel each other out if they're mm -hmm. coexisting. And so... It's gone, it's moved away from being a verbatim staging and more to something just that's inspired by the imagery and the intentions. And has Notley herself been involved at all? I reached out to her to get permission, which I did. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I had permission to use 20 pages. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I'm not even using that much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I think part of the process for me was I went through the book and I was like, okay, which 20 pages am I going to use? And that distilling process has become even more, I guess, brutal. <laughs> what does the audience need to know? Yeah. What should be the presence of the text in the space? You know, on a literal level, should it be projected? Should it be voiceover? Should the performers be activating it? Should the audience be given a piece of paper? Mm. Should the book exist as an object? You know, all of those questions. And in the past, I did a staging of Ben Lerner's Leaving the Utocha Station, and the book was very much an object on stage. Mm. Like, the performers had it, they were reading from it, you could see it. Um, and in this, the, the book is not present as an object as much. Well, that makes sense to me. And I want to ask how you sort of contend with the punctuation, the quotation marks. You know, and she says at the beginning of the book that it's that they're 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 there for several reasons, but one is to to remind the reader that it's spoken. So it makes sense on that level that the the physical object of the book wouldn't necessarily need to be as present. Right. Yeah, and the quotations are so intriguing because to me they signal a peculiar relationship to time, mm. and so how to translate that. Choreographically, I feel like in dance there are lots of default uh, relationships to time. You know, perhaps it's a phrasing that's keyed to music, you know, 4-4 time. Or in modern dance, perhaps it's a phrasing that's keyed to gravity or the weight of the body. And from, from that, there comes kind of a certain predictable ebb and flow that we associate with, like, old-school modern dance. Mm -hmm. And I didn't... I really wanted to push against both of those. So I'm really interested in a stilted timing that is associated with those quotation marks, not only in terms of how movement spools out in time, but also how it's placed in space. Hmm. So thinking about you know how does it appear on the page and then how does that translate to the stage? So we've done some experiments where literally the dancers would advance into the space as if they were a line of text and you know, how do we signify a line break and a lot of those explorations have kind of faded away or gone underground but it was definitely part of the research so elisa 
the the listener is going to be like, wait, what? What's happening? What quotations? What? Like, what is this story? Can you can you can you help? <laughs> you <laughs> like when did you what? what? <laughs> you want me to talk about Notley's use of quotations? People can go and listen to the Commonplace episode with Alice Notley if they want. People can go read the book. People can look it up. But I think at this point, if someone is still listening, it would be kind to give them a, a little bit of an overview of what the book is. And then I would love to hear, you know, how you found it and what you're doing with it. Sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that second part, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Well, I actually re-listened to the Notley interview mm. in preparation for our conversation. And um, it was so interesting and so moving to me to remember the time period because you were how I found this poem. Mm. I think I read Mothers and... Alette and eating in the underworld. Like I, I like built a syllabus for myself basically <laughs> based on that, based on that conversation. And of course you might remember that I was reading the poem at the same time that concentration camps were being built on the Texas, Mexico border. Mm. And so I read that section from the first book about that begins, they take your baby away when you're on fire while they were separating families. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'll ever not be in that relation to the poem. Mm -hmm. That will, it will always be, the poem that made it possible for me to live and think while that was happening. It, it was, yeah. And then I wrote you a fan letter because I thought I was going to start make, making recordings of people. And you very kindly called me from your, from your car uh, on the way back from a bar mitzvah <laughs> in Maine. <laughs> um, but yes, so this poem, Alice Notley's Descent of Alette, is an epic poem in the tradition of the Odyssey or the Iliad, but it's also a dream vision. The, the poem begins, I awoke on the subway. So the dream begins uh, just like Dante's Inferno begins with him wandering into the woods. Um, Notley's poem begins with the unexpected awakening onto a subway from which you cannot emerge. Um, and yes, it is there are a thicket of quotation marks in this poem. Every phrase, um, every poetic foot that Notley is trying to mark is surrounded by a pair of quotation marks. So not just speech, but 
her own internal sense of the rhythm of the lines. And many people have given her a hard time <laughs> about these quotation marks. Uh, and so she, you know, has had a lot to say about them over the years. But the, the, the thing that I find most compelling and moving about them is, uh, well, there's two things. One is um, her insistence on slowing the reader down and on controlling the rhythm with which they receive the poem. I think along with her amazing confidence in setting out to write a feminist epic, that that, that those quotation marks are kind of sticking out of the territory within the reader's mind, right? I'm also very attached to her explanation that they're a constant reminder that the poem is voiced and not written. So it's a poem that is always thinking of the oral history that, that is behind somebody like Homer and the, the storytelling form of the great mythological epics, not just from the Greece Greek and Roman mythologies, but, you know, Icelandic sagas and the Celtic um, sagas. And I really, and I really, and I, I cannot imagine myself having the confidence to place myself in that tradition, but boy, am I glad that she did. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think she succeeds. Part of what makes that poem unique in her in the body of her, you know, like unbelievably amazing and varied work is that the, the underpinnings of those great poems are so familiar to us. Even if we've never read one of them, the structures of those epics appear in our television shows, and our movies, and our novels, and our video games, especially in Dungeons and Dragons. Like, it, they, they are everywhere. They're one of the bedrocks of how we make sense of the world. So even though the poem itself is so strange in many ways, that underpinning provides this sense of familiarity and becomes a place to rest inside the poem. And I really felt held by that poem the first time I read it in a way that made me very sad when it was over. I was like, what do I do, what do, I do now? I can't remember the name of this poem, but you probably know it. But I remember I was reading one of her other books and I came upon a poem where she talks about her own sadness in, in, in not writing the Alette anymore, mm. that the poem had functioned for her in a similar way that it had functioned for me, that, that the length of it and the, the sense of journeying had provided a kind of company and a, a structure for her uh, that was hard to leave behind.
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Company and structure, man. That's just everything to me right now. <laughs> I had totally either forgotten or not known that uh, you found this poem through me. <laughs> wow. I'm like, I did good. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, all right. But how did you come to be then hosting and organizing these read throughs <laughs> and like you didn't leave it behind. I did not leave it, it behind. Didn't leave you behind. No. Yeah. Well, Alette was the beginning of something that I call for myself um feminist hell studies. Uh so I <laughs> I have been for years now first under the Trump administration, but even more so during the pandemic, uh, reading and collecting these stories of the, of underworlds and journeys through underworlds. Because it feels mm -hmm. like that's what we're doing. <laughs> it just feels very contemporary to me. I know that a lot of people felt a lot of relief when Biden entered the White House, and so did I. But although my expectations were quite low for the administration, somehow he has managed to <laughs> <laughs> be even worse um, than, I, than I thought. So I returned, I'm trying to think, the recording, which I didn't even realize that you mentioned in the interview until I listened to it again, because I, I think I just missed that part mm -hmm. and then found it for myself later. In the interview, you, you mentioned that she's just made a recording of the entire poem. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she did that like a week after the election. Yeah. So uh, the 2016 election. Let's welcome Alice Notley. Should I check the mic too? How is that? That's, that's okay. The Descent of Alette, book one. And I found that recording and I listened to it on one of the first trips that I took during the pandemic, uh, where I drove from Austin out to Marfa, which is a six and a half hour drive through not much. <laughs> like there's some towns early on and then there's a period of the drive where there are just these big uh flat structures like plateaus with windmills on them there's a lot of big wind mm. farms out there because the wind never stops mm. blowing and oil derricks it's like competing forms of energy and also there are some uh, natural gas fields out there but it's very beautiful the sky is amazing and i i listened to the poem in my car on the drive and had kind of a an ecstatic experience 
listening to her voice while I was driving through that landscape. One day, I awoke and found myself on a subway endlessly. I didn't know how I'd arrived there or who I was exactly, but I knew the train, knew riding it, knew the look of those about me. I gradually became aware, though it seemed as that happened, that I'd always known it too, that there was a tyrant, a man in charge of the fact that we were below the ground, endlessly riding our trains, never surfacing. A man who would make you pay so much to leave the subway that you don't ever ask how much it is. It is, in effect, all of you and more most of which you already pay to live below, but he would literally take your soul, which is what you are below the ground. Your soul, your soul rides this subway. I saw on the subway a world of souls. And then I did it again on another drive out there. And, on, and when I did it again a few years later, I kept seeing a stage and I kept imagining people speaking the lines on the stage and so I don't know I've been feeling quite silent for a few years I've been feeling very overwhelmed as a writer by these huge shifts in the landscape and the way that they mirror some of the things I was already writing about in the novel that I've been working on for a number of years. On the subway, we rode the trains, got on, got off, sat and watched, sat and slept, walked from car to car, stood in stations. We were caught up in movement, in ongoingness, and in ongoingness of voices. For example, which of us spoke, did it matter? who saw what was being seen, knew what was known. Gradually, what was seen became what I saw to me. Despair and outrage became mine too. Sorrow became mine to ride a mechanical contrivance in the darkness, to be steeped in the authority of another's mind, the tyrant's mind, life of bits and pieces, cars and scenes, disconnected little dreams, false continuum, mechanical time. What do we miss? What do we miss? Was there once something else? There are animals in the subway, but they are mute and sad. There are singers, there are corpses, there is substance of darkness and emotion, strong emotion. The air is all emotion. And so just as an exercise, I started trying to, to make translate the poem into a stage play. It's not something that I, you know, need permissions for. I'm not rounding anybody up to put it on stage. I just wanted to see what would happen. It was really just a way of more of reading the poem more deeply. And it and it's been super fascinating. For example, I'm convinced that this poem is a musical now. <laughs> um, there are so many songs in this poem. 
um, people are constantly breaking into song. And there's also a lot of description that it, it didn't surprise me that someone had tried to make a dance based on it because there's a lot of description in the poem that to me, you couldn't represent it on stage any other way besides movement or maybe puppetry or uh, imagery, but it's not, it's, it's meant to be a kind of, she's conjuring up an atmosphere and a series of tableaus that are so performative in the, in the way that I imagine oral storytelling used to be, right? Where someone was in charge of telling the story, but maybe you were sitting around a fire and there was light and shadow and someone had a drum and maybe there were some people in masks and everybody had had a lot to drink and it was getting very, very late at night. And, you know, so that I, in my attempt to sort of read the poem in that way, all those aspects of the poem have really come alive on the for subway, me. Holding on to a metal strap. A man in an army jacket sat in front of me eating, eating a piece of meat which he held in his hand, a piece of cold steak rimmed with fat and with black dots of pepper on it. He gnawed the meat a while then looked up and said to me, I need to find our father, our fathers. But what about our mother? I said automatically, the one mother, first mother of all. He said nothing, finished eating, leaned back into his seat. He was young, familiar looking to me. He fell asleep then, his chin doubling as his head fell forward. He was brown haired, brown eyed I'd seen mustached and straight-nosed, he spoke in his sleep. I need a dolor, a few more dolors. Then after that, I'll see our father. And then I was, I was running the Sunday poetry hours because uh, you were running a poetry hour during our class, and it became my favorite part of the week, so I didn't want it to end. And neither did some of the other people in the class. So I just kept it going. And one of the first poems that we tackled was Alette. And we would read a few sections. And then I would always bring people back up out of the underworld with another poem mm. or two. But we were going very slowly. And I realized that we would be, we would not reach the end of the poem for a few, like, a couple of years <laughs> at that rate. Um, and I wasn't sure if that was the way, if that was the best way to read the poem, that I, I felt like we were getting a lot out of it. And certainly I learned a great deal from listening to people sit with those uh, line by line readings and uh, folks had a lot to say that was really fascinating to me. But we weren't getting the immersion mm -hmm. that I had had the first time I went through it. So I asked the group if they would be okay if I opened 
up our little circle and invited people to do a read through. And, and we did. <laughs> and it was fantastic. It was, it was incredible. It was, I mean, I've read the book so many times. It felt like I'd never read it before or never heard it before. And each time I return to this text, I have that feeling. I talk a little bit with Hope about teaching the book. Um, can I play this part for you for a minute? Yeah. Um, okay. I wanted to ask you specifically, I've taught the book a few times mm -hmm. to graduate students and undergrads. And one of the things that happened the last time I taught it was several students saying they felt extremely uncomfortable with what they felt was like really racist conceptions around blackness and darkness. Yeah. And does that come into the dance at all? It doesn't come into the dance. Yeah. It definitely came up for me uh, reading the book. I also feel like there's some biological essentialism in the book that I find problematic. Mm -hmm. So yeah, both of those things, I think, uh, I've just chosen not to engage with. Another thing I noticed that I hadn't noticed when I read it, you know, 10 years earlier was what feels to me like an incredibly contemporary understanding of gender fluidity. Mm. What I was initially drawn to was a woman, the tyrant, mm. the power shifting, mm. losing power, the presence of ghosts, the spokenness, the, 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 the incantatory mm -hmm. sort of, the last time I read it, I was like, wow, there is the most fascinating stuff going on here about gender. Yeah. Does that come into it? Yeah, I'm, I too am really taken with the kind of hybridity mm -hmm. in the book, you know, the presence of animals and, you know, animal humans, you know, the, the human figures in suits with falcon heads. And then this whole premise, which I find so alluring and almost like a koan, that in order to vanquish the tyrant, this descent into formlessness is necessary. Mm -hmm. And you have to lose your body in order to reconstitute your body. And, uh, you know, I think I've translated that in the piece in a very formal way, meaning mm -hmm. uh, the piece begins with set choreography that then fractures into improvisation. Mm. So on a macro compositional level, I think that's how I've translated that idea because on the individual performer level, I don't think I've taken that on as much. You know, I haven't asked the performers to embody formlessness. Mm. Um, still a week left. <laughs> we could still fit that in. You can still embody formlessness in a week? <laughs> how would how Maybe did you even do that? <laughs> you know, I play that for a few reasons. First of all, to acknowledge that there are some some really problematic elements of this text. Also to talk about, and maybe this is part of what makes 
something, a lasting epic, which is that every time I return to this, or every time it seems to return to me almost, I, I have a profoundly different experience with this text. And I really don't know how much of that is the changing circumstances of my life mm -hmm. or the changing sort of atmosphere and environment of the world around me, who's, who's president, for example, where I am in, in my own like human lifespan. Each time, it, it's not just, it doesn't feel to me like, oh, I'm just noticing something else. It feels as if it is a different text. Mm. Do you have that feeling? Well, it's interesting. Yesterday, I met with some of the people who participated in the read-through so that we could discuss books one and two, and then we'll have another little meeting to talk about the second half of the book next week. And I, I think about both of those aspects of the book, the, I have different feelings about than maybe your students did about the way race is handled in the book. And I actually find the gender fluidity to be one of the parts of the poem that dates it. And in both, on on both of those fronts, I think that the poem is, you can feel Notley moving towards something like a critique of white supremacy because she has divided things into light and dark and she's privileging the dark. She's saying the light belongs to the tyrant and the dark belongs to the people of the subway. And many of the people in the subway are brown and the first mother is brown and the snake is white when it's dead and then it begins to turn brown and then black. There's a black pool at the very heart of the underworld that she has to go into when she dies before being ready to vanquish the tyrant. Mm. So to, to me, darkness in the poem is actually given a privileged place. Mm. I think where she runs into some trouble or maybe uh, sort of stumbles over her own imaginary mm -hmm. is that Alette has blue eyes because Alice has blue eyes. <laughs> and this is a poem in some ways about Alice and her brother, mm -hmm. which I, I find incredibly moving and heartbreaking and everybody should be able to write their own epic. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say that Alette shouldn't have blue eyes, but when I imagine the poem maybe being staged, I think, oh, well, this is an opportunity to play with mm -hmm. and open out some of those places where the poem didn't go, right? So you could cast as a let somebody who does not have blue eyes or white skin. And the same goes for gender fluidity. So on one hand, this poem is very much about the way that individuality is a myth 
Alette is constantly, and this is also a function of those crazy quotation marks, Alette is constantly present as a narrator and then listening to other people speaking who become the narrators, but you can't really tell when that transition takes place a lot of the time. So there's if there's a very um, blurry line between who's the narrator and who's speaking and are we listening to voices that are being overheard? Are these things in Alette's mind? Is it all part of the dream? In the same way that you are everyone in your dream, right? Um, Alette is all of these people and that becomes more and more true as she moves further into the underworld. The further she goes into the underworld, the less of an individual she becomes and she experiences several rounds of this complete formlessness, which is a kind of ecstatic experience that it's very painful to come back from. So that at the beginning of book two, after she has experienced this loss of her body um, and joins with all the people that have been around her so that they're all kind of one thing, or even though they remain multivocal, when she comes back into herself to continue her journey, she weeps. So that I found extremely powerful right now because we've just had an example in the pandemic of how dangerous individuality is and what a myth it is. We cannot just take care of ourselves. We are not solely at fault for our own health or illness or death. These are, we are connected to each other, whether or not we want to be, whether or not the president wants to admit that we are, right? Yeah. So that's, that's totally great. But the gender stuff, there's a, there's part of the poem that makes mm-hmm. me cringe a little bit, where Alette and a man go into a fleshy cave, mm-hmm. and they discover that they can remove their genitals mm-hmm. and stick them onto the wall. So far, so good, right? That sounds very um, prescient. Uh, this idea that the genitals should be removable and maybe they could swap or, you know, that's, that's great. But what happens when they do that is that they, be, they descend into chaos and they have a kind of gender panic. And, and, they, and Alette screams like, I want, I want my sex back. They can't handle it. <laughs> and then a few poems later, Alette speaks to a, a mermaid and kind of pities the mermaid. And the mermaid is like a little ugly and the mermaid has a hairy chest. And I find myself wishing when I read those sections that the, the same genius mind that was able to come to the brink of these ideas about gender fluidity could have gone like just that little bit farther. But mm-hmm. I mean, you can't ask for everything from every poem. <laughs> so, but I will, but I will say that um, in the first uh, meeting of where we had the read through, there was a trans woman in the group and just purely by luck or ill luck, she ended up reading that cave uh, section and I thought, oh, God, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really, I really would like it. It was somebody that I didn't know. It was just a a random person who saw my announcement on social media and came. And so I didn't know her well enough to contact her afterwards and say like, what did you think about that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that section that you ended up reading? Cause I've always had a little bit of a problem with it. And may, I hope maybe one day we will know each other well enough for me to ask those questions. But it, it I was already conscious of that, that problematic nature of it. And then the fact that she ended up reading it, of course, made me heightened that. And maybe that's what hope means by biologic essentialism. I think so. I think so. And two major sort of directions that I'm yeah. that I'm finding myself going in. Um, one is, I mean, I think it, it's a feminist epic. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent both of us and hope as well has a a fantasy a desire a wish for a feminist epic to not have any problems of this nature totally you know like um like okay yeah we want but but it's written by a human being in a particular moment in history and 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 as you point out in her history and yeah. and and she has blue eyes and it is about her and her brother and the way in which she uh feels that her brother was murdered by the state in the sense that he was uh in the army and and was deeply uh traumatized by that experience um that his death although he was not as they say killed in action um was very much a death um, of of uh, uh, of having been in that experience. I love that that you are transcribing it for the stage as a way of reading it deeply. And I wonder if part of this epics and possibly the you know the Odyssey, the Iliad, um, the story of Anana, you know, all of these these epic texts are resonant to us and inspiring to us in part because of their magic spell casting kind of ability, but also in part because of their problematic nature. And Mm. we're trying to work out, you know, we're trying to imagine other expressions of some of these ideas so the the way in which hope was struggling with how much to have the book and the text and the textuality present how much to you know how to deal with the gender essentialism you know in in her case she was like i'm just not going to deal with the race stuff um and i love your reading because because I felt as well that 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 it it feels like it's almost a full whatever that means critique of white supremacy and then somehow it isn't maybe that's part of why we come back to it because it is problematic because we are working out ways in our own lives to engage with and recreate and reimagine parts of the problematic uh elements as well as 
these parts which feel biblical in the sense that like they feel somewhat eternal so the the second direction that that comes up for me i was struggling with this with the audio with hope so in addition to being this incredible choreographer and in addition to just like feeling this kind of connection to hope through our shared love of this text you know here she is in this hotel room i really don't know very much about her personal life she tells me that part of what she's uh, uh, was so moved by by this text was these transition these personal transitions that are happening in her life including the end of her 25-year marriage and you know of course that very much describes where i am in my life the other element of what was so fascinating to me about Hope's personal uh, and professional biography is that she started an organization, and she alluded to this a little bit in the audio that we heard, but she started an organization called Hope More Dance. Maybe can I play you a little part of this? Sure, yeah. Great. So, and just to set it up a little more, so she wrote, Hope wrote a book about these, this experience, Shifting Cultural Power, Case Studies and Questions in Performance. It is a reckoning with white cultural power and a call to action. The book locates the work of curating performance in conversations about social change with a special focus on advancing racial equity in the live arts. Based on the author's journey as a dancer, choreographer, and activist, as well as on her 10 years of leading the Bridge Project and performing arts presenting platform in the Bay Area, Shifting Cultural Power invites us to imagine new models of relationship among artists and within arts organizations, models that transform our approach rather than simply recast who holds power. Okay, so here we go. And you know, your book has not been out for very long and it came out in the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. So that must have sucked. <laughs> I mean, I've never published a book before, so I had nothing to compare it to. Uh-huh. Um I don't know. I I I don't know what's going on with it. <laughs> I've I think people are reading it, but I don't hear much about it. So do you get asked to do like events? Or... Um, yeah, I get asked to talk about distributed leadership with organizations who are interested in implementing similar kinds of transitions or in the middle of navigating a transition like that. I think it's a big conversation in the arts right now. Yeah. Well, everywhere, but um, well, not everywhere, but in the arts for sure. Will you briefly say what it is? Well, I founded a dance organization um, about 15 years ago, Hope More Dance. And then in about 2018, I started thinking about transitioning it from a traditional hierarchical uh, leadership model to a distributed leadership model, uh, mostly in response to calls I was hearing from artists of color in the Bay Area that white artists in leadership needed to move back, share power, give up power. So, um, yeah, in collaboration with uh, Carla Quintero and Sheree Hill, we co-stewarded the organization's transition over three years. 
to a co-leadership, um, and the three of us were co-leaders for a while, co-leaders, co-curators. And then now uh, the organization has a new name, Bridge Live Arts. I have transitioned out of leadership, um, and now they have a new leadership team. So I have started a new chapter as an independent artist, not affiliated with a nonprofit organization. So yeah, it's been a, a journey of really looking closely at leadership, shared leadership in the, in the dance world specifically. Thank you for that description. I would say that that is a under or an under description. That's not a word. <laughs> um, but like, it's not just that you were like, oh, I should step back. And so let me get, you know, two other people to come on. Like, you know, th- what I read and heard in the interviews and stuff where it was, it's like to come back to Horizon Stanzas, it wasn't just like, let's take the form that we've got and just stick it, you know, make it three people instead of one person and make sure that not all the people are white. It was like you danced together to figure out what you wanted to do. You wrote a book. I love that you say that. Thank thank you <laughs> for that framing. I mean, it was a very process driven uh, experience. It was an emergent model. It wasn't um, a cookie cutter model or an inherited model or Mm -hmm. um, dictated from anyone else other than really the three of us, although it was a very community-based process as well. So, you know, like any creative process, it took time. It had to, I feel like for those transitions to be meaningful they take time so it was a really absorbing journey I still feel really good about it I feel like it was the right thing to do and now I'm in the space after Mm -hmm. I mean I'm I know I seem very calm but I am having an existential crisis yeah I mean I feel like how could you not be yeah I definitely am and I've had lots this past year it's definitely been the hardest year of my life Mm -hmm. for sure lots of lots of dark nights of the soul Mm -hmm. um so I I I want to name that you know it's been it's been a lot of sadness a lot of fear a lot of anger you know, a lot of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, part of me, I think there's a part of me that trusts myself and trusts my decisions. And then there's a part of me that is just freaking out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's real. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm sorry. <laughs> and also, I'm so grateful for you for sharing these parts of yourself in the dance work in the visual art like i i'm so i'm i'm grateful to you but also for like whoever in your life or whatever in your life gave you enough confidence in yourself even in these really dark times in even in the existential crisis to to believe in yourself enough especially at a time, you know, when the reason that there is an opening is because 
things have fallen apart. And I feel like for the first time in my life, I'm I'm starting to take care of myself in these ways. Yeah. I think with the anti-racism work, I felt I felt pressure to renounce um, my platform to decent and to decenter myself. And I think you know, even knowing that that is what the field needs, um, still it's, it's hard personally. And I feel like, and I wrote about this in my book, that there are tensions between feminism, which says take up space, speak up, and anti-racism work for white folks, which frequently is about take up less space. So I've been uh, kind of tracking that tension throughout. And I think this latest dance, Horizon Stanzas, was my, came out in part, came out of my desire to, to really author a dance in a way I haven't in many years and, and author a dance in the same way that when I sit down and do a drawing, it's just me and the page. I'm not collaborating with anyone. I'm not collaborating with dancers. I'm not collaborating with another lead artist, which is how I've worked forever. And so in Horizon Stanzas, I really wanted the work to come from that deep listening to myself and, and honoring that. And that's really where the dance came from. And, and then the Notley just happened later almost it's like I remembered that and then it just really made sense so and I think that's why the descent of Alette speaks to me so much right now because I feel like I'm going through some sort of similar journey that's not over yet I'm just looking for talismans and allies I feel it's such a similar moment and for me, what that means is having spent the last many, many years trying to decolonize the way I teach, the way I parent, to think deeply about, you know, how I ended up in this heterosexual marriage and with these cis male sons who I love how I made all these books and have taught and you know mentored and and looking and looking and looking for ways to be in the world that feel non-harmful and non-harming and loving and anti-racist and to try to feel that I'm not contributing at every single moment with every breath that I take to like the destruction of the planet and everything and to, you know, to take up less space and to listen more and to speak less 
And how do I do those things with integrity when also my power and I do feel like my calling and my reason for being alive Mm -hmm. is to make things Mm -hmm. and to make things with language, Mm -hmm. which involves speaking, Mm -hmm. but I'm supposed to be quiet. And when I feel, and, you know, I feel this on all the levels of my life, Mm. like wanting to give up power Mm. and wanting to get more power Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and being, you know, and it's not something you can go around complaining about (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's part of the problem. Yeah. You know, and then we've got like, oh, the white fragility and the, the crying ladies and the, Mm -hmm. you know, but I also don't think it helps anyone if I just stop, if I just stop everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of white artists who have stopped. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been a combination of the pandemic and the anti-racism conversations going on. But I know I have a lot of colleagues who have stopped making work, gone back to school or picked up completely different careers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I know a lot of white artists are sitting, have been sitting with this question. Um, I, as we should be sitting with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any one right answer. I, I continue to be really intrigued by this idea of staying in relationship. Mm-hmm to people as opposed to just exiting and I still don't really know what that means but I guess I'm trying it you know I'm still I'm still in relationship with my former co-directors I'm making art with some of them and and it's a small world Mm -hmm. It, it does feel similar to I guess, you know, what's happening in my personal life, which is that I'm, I'm separating from my husband. And the question is, well, I can't really burn this bridge because we have children. Yep. So what is the new relationship? And if I were the Buddha, <laughs> it would probably be soft and easy. And I don't know, it hasn't been for me. I've had, a, I've had and continue to have a lot of feelings of anger and sadness that seem to make that staying in relationship extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of thoughts. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, that's just, I want to know so much more about that handover I think that that's a really impressive thing to do and an impressive level of commitment to putting theory into praxis. Yeah. It's rare. But also, do you have to have something to hand over? 
like I think just remaining silent and and ceasing to work doesn't really help anybody, including the person who stops. I mean, maybe it does help that person sometimes, in which case they definitely should stop. But um, I, when I hear conversations about sharing space and sharing leadership, I, I always think that it's in relation to resources. If everybody had all the resources that they wanted whenever they wanted them, then we would have many less conversations about this. But it, but in fact, the arts are chronically underfunded and under fire. And so if you are black, if you are working class, if you are disabled, you know, if mm-hmm. you have any number of factors that are further alienating you, for moving you further away from the centers of power, then you also have less access to those resources. Yep. And so these conversations are not really about ceasing to speak. They're about who gets heard and mm-hmm. how. And they're really complicated because of that. Yeah. So when I listened to the interview, the Notley interview again, I also realized, because I didn't really understand how Patreon worked back then. Uh So there was like all these extras that I've never listened to in your Patreon. So I went and listened to the Sonia Sanchez and Eileen Miles Notley reading. And I'm so mad at AWP (laughs) right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And maybe forever, because of how they refused to cancel the 2020 conference which was in san antonio here in texas and then this year they dropped their mask mandates Mm -hmm. so making it impossible for anybody who is vulnerable to really participate in the conference without risking their lives Mm -hmm. and putting many more people at risk in seattle Mm -hmm. so it was so interesting to hear that reading and to hear eileen miles say that the real fight was happening outside the conference room as opposed to inside it. And to hear Sonia's, you know, fiery poems within that super polite and institutional setting. Mm -hmm. And to hear Alice Notley just refusing to participate in any of it. (laughs) Like, like, no, I'm not even going to talk about this question about politics i'm just going to continue to be a mystic Mm -hmm. that's the kind of setting that stage the kind of setting i think that people are talking about when they say that white people should be taking a back seat and listening as opposed to talking right that there there needs to be this uh more access to institutional power more access to money Mm -hmm. more access to publishing and audiences. Probably it would be helpful also just (laughs) if more white people had these conversations amongst themselves like we're doing right now Mm -hmm. so that when you do run into somebody who isn't white, they don't have to put up with as much of your shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm married to a Mexican-American man so we, uh, this is like a 24-7 conversation in our house, mm-hmm. especially in Texas. And we've been together for 
26 years now. Mm. So, oh, wait. No, much longer than that. I think we're <laughs> so long that I've lost track. I think we're coming up on 30 pretty wow. soon. I guess what I really like the short way of saying all of this is that you need a class analysis along with the race analysis. Like none of these conversations about race are complete. It, it Class is not enough on its own because you can still be a wealthy black man and get arrested for trying to get into your own house. Mm-hmm. And that happens and has happened on a regular basis. But in, in, in the, in the conversation that you and hope were having, I think class is a really, a really big part of that conversation. And I was, I was thinking about that in relation to descent of Alette because Alice Notley was living in a neighborhood where, you know, when she rode the subway, all the white people get off and then she would continue riding the subway like she and, you know, six other white people would continue riding a subway car full of Mm -hmm. brown people to the neighborhood where they lived Mm -hmm. because they needed to live in a place where the rent was cheaper. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that is the world of the, the underground that, she's writing about yes and i can't i can't quite believe the number of coincidences and i don't know somehow like and i say this to to hope early on in our conversation that like you know it was almost a whim that i turned out to be able to go to see horizon stanzas you know, that I happened to, to be able to, to fix my schedule so that I could go to, so that I could be in San Francisco. I haven't been traveling very much since COVID. There's like something about Descent of Alette that seems to create this like sisterhood, mm-hmm. these, these invisible connections um, between me and other people who are somehow caught up in the in the underground you know of this of this text or who are willing to make this descent and and it seems somehow that many of the people who have this experience of just like being caught up in this text it's not enough to to listen to it or read it over and over again it also seems like people want to make something of it to bring other people with them on this journey community and structure, community and structure to be in relation, even if we like don't know exactly what that means yet. And, you know, it seems so beautiful to me now in this moment, like looking at you to think about like, we've never met in person. I, I feel so close to you. I feel so grateful to you. I mean, I'm really, I'm trying to teach my way into making a school. I'm trying to like live my way into going back to writing. And it is through these relationships like that I have now with you that I'm even able to kind of understand what I'm doing. So I don't know, we should end because how am I going to ever like do this? And also I'm going to see you tomorrow for one group and then I'll see you Friday for the next group. So there is no end. Um, But 
Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I was wondering why you didn't just splice your part of your intro from the Notley interview as a and just use the thing that you already said because you give a pretty good intro I just didn't think of it (laughs) I needed you you're you're like my maybe you just really didn't want to revisit that interview I think that's part of it and I think I I didn't really know exactly what I wanted from you in terms of doing it this way but I knew that I didn't I just didn't feel up to doing this alone I needed it to be a conversation instead of an introduction. Like I couldn't even do a a solo introduction of this conversation with Hope. And this was wonderful. Well, it's been super dreamy (laughs) for me. And I am also really grateful to you. And I can't, I mean... It's just so weird, yeah. Rachel. Like, cause I I had you in my head all those mm-hmm. years, and I I wrote so many unsent letters in my head about, you know, all the responses to the conversations that you were having, and it it really is just so strange and wonderful to be to be talking to you like this. It's really really great. Maybe all those letters did reach me. <laughs> And, and maybe in some way, this is a form of distributive leadership of the podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that that's, that's also part of what's going on. Yeah, well, and I was, I was gonna say, like, just by you have a platform and you do share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna see you. Yes, I'm gonna tomorrow. go work on the thing that I'm sharing. <laughs> I was stippled with diamond shapes, and as I was thus degraded, as all went astray, I was yet the only memory or sign of the creation. I was all there was of that, and so I endured that dance. I danced and I danced. Nothing but sex, my head gradually, over ages, disattached from my body, as if by the will of everyone. My body still danced then, but my head played audience to the achievements of males. See it there? She pointed suddenly, a head sat several feet from us with open eyes, frozen eyes, and fixed, frozen smile. This has been episode 114 of Commonplace with choreographer, artist, and advocate Hope Moore and with writer and artist Elisa Herod. Many thanks to Hope, Elisa, University of Akron Press, Penguin, the Joe Good Annex in San Francisco, and the Poetry Center, San Francisco State University for audio of Alice Notley's 2016 reading of The Descent of Alette. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to all of you who have signed up for classes from the new Commonplace School, and to all of you who send messages of support and encouragement for what we're doing here at the podcast and with the school. And most of all, always, to you, listener, thank you for listening.